Well, you can start by turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but I want to introduce this before we take a look at that together. Secret growth, two words that probably get your attention, and we're going to talk about both of those. I have known a lot of Christians throughout my life. I grew up in the Bible Belt, really the buckle of the Bible Belt in northeast Arkansas, and I always went to church. I went to church before I was even born. When I was in my mother's womb, I was in church. I'm sure, I was sleeping most of the time. Not a lot of that changed through my teenage years, by the way. I still slept in church, but I was there, and I observed Christians, people who call themselves by the name of Christ. Uh, I was around believers of all kinds, old, young, enthusiastic, uh, dab, <laughs> Educated, uneducated, leaders, servants, laymen, and I've served in pastoral ministry on and off for the past, I'd say, 15, 16 years. Five of those, I was in seminary, so I was around pastors and missionaries and Bible translators who were getting trained to go out and serve Christ in the world, and I've served in five different churches in that time. So I'm not doing all that to give you some impressive resume. That's actually not very impressive. Just to tell you, though, I've been around a lot of Christians. I've been to five different countries on different lengths of mission trips, short-term, long-term. So I've had interaction with global Christianity, and I think I have a pretty good feel for different varieties of Christians, their convictions, their passions, the things that motivate them. I've been around a lot of Christians. And I've known and served so alongside a lot of those Christians, up close and personal, in good times, in hard times, times of blessing and abundance, times of prosperity, times of adversity. For better or for worse, sickness and health, right? For richer or for poor, I've seen Christians endure all those times. I've seen a lot, and I have to be honest with you. I have to be honest with you. Some of those people didn't remind me very much of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? I got your attention. That woke you up a little bit, didn't it? We're honest up in here, okay? This is a church where we're honest. In fact, I've been one of those Christians that I'm sure didn't resemble Jesus very much, didn't remind people of him, didn't act like him. Here's what I mean, the way that some of those Christians and myself included treated others who didn't believe like I did or believe like they did. The way that they handled suffering and opposition, the way that they faced temptation, the way they struggled with different sins. The way they handled success and prosperity. See, Christian character comes through in that as well as it does when you face adversity. Not just how do you handle hard times, how do you handle good times? Does it puff you up or make you humble? The way they received criticism. The way they talked to their parents. The way they talked to their kids. The way they parented. The way they talked to their spouse. Now, I'm not willing to say that those people that didn't remind me of Jesus were false converts. That's an easy card to throw down on the table. It's a trump card, and that just kind of solves all the difficulties. Well, they were never Christian to begin with, right? They were a false convert, and they don't really believe. So send them back through the evangelism course, right? No, I don't believe that, and here's why. Because I have experienced, call them what you want, short periods, seasons, struggles, a time of disobedience, maybe a blind spot. You couldn't see it. You didn't grow through it, really. The apostles were like that. The Old Testament saints were like that. And when I struggled with that, it wasn't because I wasn't a Christian. I'd wager that you've suffered times like that too, where you didn't resemble Christ very much. You were unwilling to serve others. You were slow to offer forgiveness. Anybody guilty of that? You were stingy with your money. You weren't excited about fellowshipping with other Christians. Maybe you didn't go to church for a season of time in your life. Maybe you were reluctant to confess sin. To God and maybe to other people the way the Bible tells us to and be healed. Maybe you were self-centered and maybe you were angry and maybe you were proud. In whatever way, there was a time in your life where maybe you didn't look like Jesus very much. You didn't resemble him. And I would say that the problem is not necessarily unbelief. It's immaturity. It's immaturity. The problem with those people and with me was not that we didn't believe. The problem was that I wasn't growing. I, I didn't grow. I was like a spiritual infant, just stuck. You know, you read, about, you read about some adults that return to that. I've seen a crazy trend where some grown men want to put on diapers and sleep in a crib. It's the craziest thing in our culture. Maybe you've heard of it. I don't want to talk anymore about it. But same kind of idea, like stuck as an infant. You're not growing. A growth problem. This is huge. Listen, if, if becoming a Christian 
means following Jesus, then I would submit to you this. The Bible also says growing as a Christian means you look more like him. Okay, really simple formula. If becoming a Christian means you follow Jesus, then growing and maturing and developing as a Christian means you're becoming like him. You look more like him. You sound more like him. You talk more like him. Your behavior resembles his behavior more. And the less and less like the old you you resemble, right? That's what the Bible says. That's, there's a 25-cent word for that. It's called sanctification. And it actually means in the Bible, when you read that, it's a Greek word, and it means to make holy, to set apart for holy purposes. You're being sanctified. You're growing, and you're resembling Christ. You're being conformed to his image. That's what Christian growth is. Now, the question that a lot of people would ask at this point is this, because we all want to know the secret, right? Our, our, our culture is filled with secrets that people hold out on you, and you got to pay money or give your re, real email to get it, right? But this is, the only reason that this secret to growth in Christianity is, is uh, even considered a secret, it's not because it's not in plain view, it is. I think it's because it's so simple and it's so clear, and Christians want things to be complicated and complex, right? So the church, I think, to a large degree has hidden this, and I want to expose it today for you and for myself so the the most important question really is not how do you measure christian growth the the more important question probably the most important question is what causes it not how do you measure it listen if you pull out some kind of spiritual measuring stick and start putting it up next to christians you can ruin the whole thing you really can pastor jeff has preached on that because listen not all christians grow linearly not all christians grow the same way and I think what the church has done, because it's a crisis, is in order for, for, to measure growth, we have like these static, linear, okay, you read these books, and then you, you go through this class, and then you listen to these lectures, and then when you graduate, you, you slap a level three Christian sticker on their back. And they're supposed to be mature grown-ups, and they're supposed to be like Jesus then, right? But it's not that easy. It doesn't always work that way. In fact, listen, <laughs> I've taken some of those classes. Heck, I've taught some of those classes. And some of the people that accumulate the most information, can I be really honest with you? Some of those people are the ones that look the least like Jesus. They're just really puffed up and proud. Some things fill you up, right? But not all things grow you up in Christianity. And I'm not at all trying to pit theology and teaching against Christian growth and maturity. Those are friends. They're not enemies. But we can't make one out to be the other. They don't, they don't always equate and translate easily into growth. If you can... List by name and in order all the kings of Judah, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a grown-up, spiritually mature Christian, right? If you can name all the apostles, sing all the books of the Bible, that doesn't equal instant Christian growth. It just doesn't. The Bible is a means to growth. It's not the end of growth, though. And listen, I love theology. I do. Hey, buy me a cup of coffee and we'll talk to the cows come home about every area of systematic theology, sanctification, We'll talk about spiritual gifts. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit's role in salvation and sanctification. We'll talk about the end times and eschatology. We'll talk about sublapsarianism and the hypostatic union. We'll go deep, okay? But theology can also become an end in and of itself and become like the Dead Sea. Instead of there being an exit ramp, it's just a swamp, and there's no life and no growth there. That happens a lot. Unfortunately, it does. It's not the Bible's fault. It's our fault for misusing it. So what causes growth what is the secret well listen i want you to know you came on the right sunday you know normally we're going through the gospel of mark but since jeff is away this week and i kind of had we, we had short notice that happened really fast i've been thinking about this praying about this and i want to i want to talk about it i wanted to preach a sermon on it so if you ask 10 christians this question how do you grow you may get as many as 10 different answers can anybody testify to that Go ask 10 different questions, or go to the Christian bookstore. I don't know if there is one of those anymore. They're shutting down a lot of them. But go to the Christian growth section. If you want to be confused, go to that section. And check out every book and read it, and be really confused probably. Because listen, some people are going to say, be more diligent. There's going to be a be more. Be more and do more. Be more diligent. Go to church more. Pray more. Witness more. Read the Bible more. Read more Christian books. Listen to more Christian music. Watch more Christian movies. In general, do more. And those aren't bad things. Those aren't bad things. 
but it's generally the answer you, you get is, is busyness and sweat, sweat and busyness. But the Bible has a better answer, it has a more clear answer. And I'll show you the slide. This is where I want to go this morning, okay? I don't know if you can see that. Um, how can I grow as a Christian? That's what it says up top. Sorry about that. I decapitated the heading, didn't I? <laughs> two things, just two points this morning, okay? One, sight over sweat. Sight over sweat, and I'm going to explain what that means. And two, focus over frenzy. Two answers. Sight over sweat is first. The Bible says this in one of the passages that you just read, along with Bobby, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says that we are actually changed by sight, not by sweat. It says that you, as you behold Christ, here, let me just read the text again, it's short. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and that's Jesus Christ, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is one of the most powerful verses in your Bible. Now, if you want to write in your Bible, I'd circle it, I would underline it, I would dog ear the page, I would put a bookmark in there. If you want to know the quote-unquote secret to Christian growth, that's it. You are changed by sight, not by sweat. You become like what you behold. And listen, I will tell you this. That is counterintuitive to every other religion in the world. It's unique to Christianity. You gaze and you behold Christ, his beauty, his power, his loveliness, his flawlessness, all those qualities about him. And the Bible says something very mysterious happens. You begin to resemble him. And when you resemble him, you, be, you begin to reflect him. You're like the moon, that big, ugly ball of dirt up in the sky. But listen, when it's in the right place... And the sun is shining. Man, it's beautiful to look at, isn't it? People get out phones and start taking selfies. It reflects something glorious, and that's what happens to us. And it's almost imperceptible. We don't, we don't realize it happens. We throw the yardstick away. We stop caring about that. We stop trying to go around and do fruit inspection on ourselves and others. We stop navel-gazing. We behold Christ. We're changed by sight, and we resemble him. And it says, from one level of glory to the next, it's incremental. It doesn't happen overnight. Which is mean it's, it's, it's a developed taste. You know some of the finest cuisines, am I saying that right? I'm just a redneck. Some of the best tasting food you'll ever put on your palate in the world actually requires you to develop a taste for it. Did you know that? And I think it's the same way in Christianity. This doesn't just happen, especially if you've cultivated a habit of not doing this. This is something you have to cultivate in your life. It's something you have to fight for. Listen, to fight for Christian growth is a fight to see because you are changed by sight. That means you do whatever you have to do to position yourself in the most advantageous place where you can see Christ clearly. You remove all obstacles, okay? Anything that hinders you, anything that's going to blind him, anything that might eclipse his glory, you get it out of the way. That's the fight. <laughs> it's not to do more, per se. It's to see more clearly. That's the secret, and it's all over the Bible. Listen, the Bible has a lot to say about this. Now, I'm not the kind of preacher that placards 500 scriptures up here and, and lose you, okay? But I just want to read a few of them. In fact, I don't think I put them up here. Listen to this. Sight over sweat. Psalm 63, 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. If I were to ask you the question, why do you come to church? I mean, that's an important question. You're getting underneath the motivator, the, the motivation. It's a question we need to ask ourselves. Because if you stop asking that question, going to church becomes a checklist. And when it's really hard or when it's really inconvenient, if you don't know why you go, you won't go. You won't go. I have a built-in accountability. I have to be here, right? But ask yourself that question. When you forget why you come here, it stops taking the place of priority in your life. It happens. Listen, guys. We come here to behold Christ. That's what the psalmist prayed. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Listen to this. This is Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why, David? Why do you want to do that? Why would you want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life? Can you think of anything that sounds more boring to people? Listen to the rest of it, though. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate or inquire in his temple. 
That's why you come to church, guys. You come to church to see Christ, to gaze upon his beauty, to behold his power, and to learn, as the rest of that psalm says, that his loving kindness is better than life. You come to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why you're here. Listen, you come and you hear a lecture and you leave with new information, right? You come and hear a motivational speaker, you leave with new behavior. You're supposed to come into God's house and hear somebody proclaiming and making a declaration about the good news, and you're supposed to leave with new affections. That's what the church is supposed to be, guys. You come and hear a preacher, I'm not a lecturer, I'm not a motivational speaker, I'm not. I don't live down by the river in a van either, okay? You're supposed to leave here with new affections. You're supposed to leave here seeing Christ more clearly than you did when you came in here. It's like Martin Lloyd-Jones told his wife one time, one of my favorite preachers of all times in London. He told his wife they were talking about all the people were taking copious notes when he preached. And it bothered him because he felt like he was just giving them a lecture. And they were taking down information. And he told his wife one day, he said, he said this. He said, I don't mind it if at the beginning they're taking notes and jotting down things. And I don't either, by the way. That doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I'm half blind and I can't even see you. But Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, but I know this. If they're still writing at the end of the sermon, then it's, uh, then it's a flop. He said, I want them to put down their pen and worship I love that. That's Jeff and I, we joke back and forth. I'm like, dude, I want people in Grace Life Church to be so enraptured, not with me, not with me, but with the, the Christ that I'm declaring to you. I want you to be so transported by this vision of glory that you see every Sunday that you put your pen out and you worship. You just forget taking notes. Forget the outline. We're not, I mean, this is a dumb outline anyway. I'm not clever enough to come up with dumb, with some intelligent outlines that stick with you. I've tried. It's not my gift. I just want you to see Christ. I want you to see him powerfully. Clearly, all his perfections, all his flawless beauty, you know, he, he can bear the weight of your worship. Only Christ can. You're going to behold something. I will tell you this, all of you, all of you came in here this morning and you're captivated by something in your life. Something has you. Something has you and it's holding you hostage. It's holding you captive. You take it to bed. You wake up with it. You're meditating on it. And if it's not Christ, they cannot possibly bear the weight of your worship. Maybe it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a kid, a job, beauty, money, success, whatever it is. You're captivated and fascinated by something, and only Christ can bear the weight of your worship. Anything else, you'll break it, and you'll break yourself. The Bible says you grow into greater and greater Christ-likeness by beholding him. In fact, I would say this. People who are stuck... And these patterns of immaturity, um, a growth problem is an awe problem, A-W-E. It's not that you've lost your faith or that you've lost your mind. You've lost your awe. You've lost your awe. You've stopped being just transported by these visions of Christ that you see in Scripture and you hear in the gospel. Paul David Tripp said this. This is so good. He said, spiritual growth is about recapturing your awe. I agree with that. We are human beings, we're made in God's image, and we are intended, we are designed, it's in our spiritual DNA to be just amazed and blown away by things, to, to crave glory. That's how God made us. We will find glory in something. And listen, most of the time, if left to ourselves, we'll find it in lesser things. We will. That's our nature. And God understands that. That's why he gives us all these reminders about the most important things. The whole Old Testament is filled with this. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and, and this has become my personal prayer. When I read the Bible, my prayer is the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33. You know what he said? Man, this is a bold prayer, guys. This is a bold thing to ask God to do. He said, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. Can you imagine in the Old Testament with the understanding Moses had? If you see God, you die. If you touch God or anything associated with God, you're struck dead. Remember that? Don't go near the mountain. Don't break through and reach out and touch the mountain. Anything that does will die. And certainly, don't even think of looking at God. Because if you look at him, you're toast. You will be blown, incinerated into a million pieces. You'll be nuked. So think how bold and courageous that was of Moses to say, God, I want to see your glory. i got to see it. I've heard of you. Heard you speak to me? It's just these whisperings, and I've got to see you. I want to see you. You know what? God showed him his glory. He did. And when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, especially chapters 3 and 4, 
He is looking back to what happened to Moses. Because you remember this story. God said, Moses, if you look at me straight on, you'll die. But Moses, I love you. I've, I've, I've manifested my grace to you. And I care so much about you and you being the leader of, of Israel, my people. I'm going to show you my glory. But just so it doesn't incinerate you, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. You remember this? He said, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to find this place between two big boulders on this mountain. And I'm going to hide you there. I'm going to put my hand over you. And I'm only going to let you see my, my passing glory, my backside. You can't see me full frontal. You'll die. I'll let you see my backside. And God passed by. And it's an amazing thing to read about. You can meditate that maybe on the rest of this Lord's Day. When you get home, you can look it up in the Bible, Exodus. But it says that when, when God passed by, he said this. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and full of compassion, overlooking the iniquity of thousands. See, as God is passing by Moses, he's making this declaration about who he is. Amen. He's telling Moses he's gracious. He forgives the iniquity of thousands and tens of thousands. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That covenantal word in Hebrew for faithfulness. And the Bible says this. When that happened, Moses walked down the mountain and he entered into the camp of Israel. You remember what it says happened to Moses? What happened? His face was a glow. His face was illuminated. I wish I could see it. I really do. The Bible is so fascinating to me. And here's the most interesting thing. The Bible says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the planet back then. He was. He was the most humble man. And Moses didn't know his face was glowing until people started flipping out. They were freaking out and going, ah, what happened to you? And he said, what are you talking about? I met with God on the mountain. See, Moses looked at the, the hindquarters of God. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock, but still the power, the afterglow was enough to light his face up. And you know what Paul is saying here? Get the guys... Leave here with this. If nothing else I say makes sense, leave here with this. Paul is comparing the new covenant, rooted and grounded in Christ's finished work on the cross. He's comparing that, actually contrasting that with the old covenant, which was the law, Mount Sinai, thunder, death. You know what he's saying? He's saying the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Because you know what Moses had to do? He had to actually cover his face with a veil. So it wouldn't scare the people, and also because he knew that glory would fade. It was fading, a fading glory. Isn't that a, isn't that a clothing line at Walmart or something? I don't know if they got that from Exodus. But Moses' glory was fading. It was old. It was based on the law. It was even called a ministry of death, written on stones. And Paul is contrasting that with the new covenant, with the glory that's to be found in Christ. You don't have to wear a veil. The veil is removed in Christ. Listen to this, verse 16. Check this out. When one turns to the Lord, when one turns to the Lord, when you're saved, when you confess your sins, believe the gospel, trust Christ, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, all of us, all Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see that? We are changed by sight, not by sweat, not by doing, not by this busy, frenetic activity. That plays a role, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But the pure essence of Christian growth, Christian maturity, Christian transformation is beholding Christ. And it's imperceptible. It happens. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's happening. You just begin to look more like Christ, sound more like Christ, resemble Him more fully the way that you suffer, the way that you treat your enemies, the way that you handle prosperity. You get more generous with the resources God gave you. You're more humble when opposition comes. Can I just give you a personal testimony? I didn't really plan on this, but I just, I believe so powerfully in what I'm telling you. I've been a Christian since I was 22, and I'm 42 now. And I have always, since I've been a young man, I have just been so sensitive to criticism. Okay? Sin, I don't like it. I don't like hearing it. When I was an athlete, I didn't like hearing it. I wanted to break records, weightlifting and running track. I wanted to be the fastest. I wanted to be the best looking, had the best looking. I, I hated criticism of any kind. I had to be on the top and the best. And I carried that over into Christianity. And I want to tell you that was one of the most stubborn things that I could not shake no matter how hard I tried. I was a one little word of criticism. After a lesson I taught or a sermon I preached, you can ask my wife. 
it would wreck me, absolutely wreck me. I mean, I, I would lose sleep, couldn't focus. If my phone rang, I thought it was the person that criticized me. Seriously. To this day, I have my PTSD a little bit. When my phone, an old ringtone, I had to get rid of it. Because every time that stinking phone rang, I would, I would look, is it him? Is it her? Do they have a problem with me? Now, I want, I want to tell you something interesting. And this is a much longer story than I want to get into, so I'll keep it as short and sweet as possible, okay? For the last three, four, five years, God has taught me this about beholding Christ, about just marinating and soaking in the gospel, staring at the cross, delving into more deeply the finished work of Jesus and all that that means for me. I'm a child of God. I'm not an orphan. I'm his son. He died for me. He loves me unconditionally. He's pledged himself to me. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can threaten that. Nothing can remove me from his hands. I am a child of God. I'm a son of the king, and I'm feasting with him at his table. I will always have a place there. Nothing can change that. The last three, four, five years, something really mysterious has happened to me. Can I tell you what it is? I take criticism very serious, but I don't take it personal anymore. I don't. I don't. You can, you, when we're done here, you can walk up to me. Now, I have bad days, okay? <laughs> you can walk up to me and say, Tommy, I just got to be honest, man. That is the worst sermon I think I have ever heard in my life. You laid a big, fat, ugly egg. It didn't make any sense. And I'm now stupider for having come here and listened to you. <laughs> now, I'll talk to my wife and say, when, you're, when she's working in the back, when you're able, can you please listen to that sermon? And tell me if I was clear. I, that's my main thing is I want to be clear. I want it to be truthful. I want it to be accurate. And I want to be passionate. But outside of that, I will take that criticism. If you write it in a letter, I'll read it. I'll pray. And then I'll wad it up and throw it away. Because it doesn't wreck me anymore. And here's why, friends. Here is why. This is how my beholding Christ has, has grown me and matured me and made me more like him. My entire life and identity isn't grounded in any judgments that you would make about me. It's not. It's grounded in the declaration that God has already made over my life because of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's it. That's the gospel. Listen, I've been declared blameless and righteous by Christ. I don't have anything to prove to anybody. I don't. And there were days I thought that I did. I came up here having to prove something to you. Those days, by God's grace, I think they're gone. They still... Every Sunday, every Sunday when I get up to preach, they still knock on the door, and I say, go away. I don't have anything to prove. And listen, I don't have anything to hide. Somebody says, hey, dude, I knew you when you were a teenager. I was at a party when you were hanging, whatever. Listen, I don't have anything to hide. I've been forgiven by Christ. There's no skeleton in my closet that scares me. That's the truth. And I don't have anything to lose. I'm a child of God. Take my, take my life. Take my family. That'd be, that would be tragic. But that wouldn't wreck me. Because I belong to Christ. There's just a little short testimony there, okay? I've seen it in my own life. The last three, four years have been revolutionary to me. And that's the only, that's the only uh, connection that I can make is that God has shown me I've rediscovered the power of the gospel. I have found the simple, clear, I don't like to use the word easy. That sounds cheap. But I've found a clear solution in the Bible to Christian growth. It's beholding Christ. It's beholding Christ. And, and, and the busyness being a mile wide and an inch deep, I'm done with that. In fact, I cleaned out my office. I got rid of 300 books. Some of them were great books. Good theology books, man. I worshiped them. Had a great time worshiping over those books. But you know what? There's one thing. I feel like Mary now. There's one thing that's needed. And books that help me do that, those are the ones I'm keeping. Those are the ones I'll recommend to you. So, where was I? That was a long ride of tracing. <laughs> I my notes here, okay? Spiritual growth is not recapturing your all. See, I've lost my all, and I've rediscovered it by God's grace, and that's all I want to talk about. That's all I want to talk about. Paul is contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. And he goes on a little bit later to talk about, I think in chapter 4, verse 6, look at this, if you have your Bible open. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How about that? Looking at God not only will not kill you, it will give you life and bring transformation. Because of what Christ has done, we can behold the face of God in Jesus Christ. And listen, the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, is the only one who is able to open the eyes of your heart and let you see the power and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus to be liberated, to be freed from the chains to fall. 
He's the only one that can do that. He's the only one. When you want to know a person, you don't look at their neck or their knees. You look at their face. You look at their countenance. And that's what the Bible really says. May the countenance of Christ fall upon you and change you, transform you. If look and live was the conversion experience, look to Christ and live, then staring and growing is sanctification. This is not just a quick look we're talking about. In fact, you know that word, uh, as we behold Christ, we become like him in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's the word that we get metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis takes place. It's amazing. It means to change in form or appearance. And that word behold, it means not just a quick glance. Look, you look at a light bulb. You look at a selfie. You behold a sunset. You behold a Rembrandt painting at a museum. This is not just this quick glance, like the Red Bull, rush, craze, hurry, frenzy society we live in. This is a slow, steady gaze. This is a reflection. This is, and uh, somebody once defined meditation as attention with intention. This is very purposeful, very strategic, beholding of Christ. Positioning yourself in such a, a place that you're going to encounter him and see him clearly. Like a bird watcher. You know, have you ever seen a bird watcher? If you're a bird watcher, no offense at all. My hat's off to you. Uh, bird watchers do crazy things to position themselves to see the most winged creatures. You know that? And man, there's some parallels there. They climb mountains, drive thousands of miles, get in an airplane and fly halfway around the world, buy this fancy equipment. Why? To behold the object of their affection. Right? To find it. It comes out once a day and it may poop on your head. But man, we're going to be there. We're going to watch it. There's some parallels there. What will Christians to do to behold Christ clearly? Sometimes it, it seems not much. And that's why growth is so stunted. We have a lot of immature Christians, I think, in the church. They're doing a lot of things, but the one thing that would produce and cause growth and Christ-likeness, it drops, to, drops by the wayside. You need to behold Jesus in all his glory. Look, I, I believe with all my heart that's why there are four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and there's all these epistles. Why? Because all of them have one goal and purpose, to show you Christ, to connect your life to his life, to his finished work. Every possible angle you can look at. I mean, seriously, we're going through Mark's Gospels. Luke says some of the same things. Matthew says some of the same things. Why? Because you want to see every facet of that diamond, don't you? You don't want to miss out on anything. It's like my kids, when I give them chocolate milk, man, they're sucking every last drop out of that cup in the morning. To get the sweetness and the goodness, it's the same thing in the Bible. That's why we have all 66 books, and it's about one person and one of them. I was thinking about this the other day. Do you know why Jesus, you remember the road to Emmaus experience? After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he reappeared to his disciples, walking on a seven-mile road to Emmaus. And they were sad. They were confused. They didn't understand why the Messiah had died and gone away. They were somewhat blinded to his true identity. And Jesus mysteriously shows up on the road, walks the entire length. Here's the disciples. Here's what's going on. And he rebukes them. And he says, you should have known. You should have known that the Son of God had to come and suffer and die and be, and be raised from the dead. And then it says this. And starting with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he took them through all the Old Testament and showed them all the things that pertain to him. You remember that? You remember that story? Do you know why Jesus did that after the cross? Because so much of beholding Christ is connected to the most important historical event that ever happened. Him dying on a cross for sinners like us. That substitutionary act. It would not. Had he showed up on the road to Emmaus before the cross, they wouldn't have gotten it. But as you read the Bible, you read the Old Testament, you're starting to make more of these connections, like the scapegoat we read about, where the priest lays his hands on the head of the goat, confesses the sins of the people, sends them off. The slaughter that took place in the temple, all those things made sense after the cross. It should make sense to us too. I want to show you a prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians that goes hand in hand with this. Check this out. You want to know what a church planner that was an apostle, what did he pray that God would do for all those people and all those churches that he planted. I know this is a letter to Ephesus, but the letter to Colossae. A lot of these letters, he prays the same thing. Check this out. He says, may God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Did you see that? 
Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Why, Paul? What do we need to see? What does the Holy Spirit need to do to us? Um, to, to, what are we supposed to look at now? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You hear that? The hope of Christ. The riches and the inheritance of Christ. The immeasurable greatness of Christ. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of the members of those churches so they could see it. All that is is another way of saying, help them, Holy Spirit, behold Christ. He has to do that. The Holy Spirit has to do that. He's the only one who can. That's why Matt Papa, his book, Look and Live, he said, Make your life one unflinching gaze upon the glory of Christ. I came across something. I, I don't know if you'll find this interesting like I did. Um, I love art. I wish I could draw or paint. I can't. Uh, but I love to gaze at art. Really good, beautiful art that moves you, that you feel transported. You feel magnetized by it. Now, I read the story of a guy who was an artist. His name is James Elkins. And he talks about, as a kid, he saw this painting called St. Francis's Ecstasy. When he was a little kid, he saw it. It's about a monk walking outside a cave with his hands outstretched to heaven. It looks like a plain picture to me. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background, but he talks about how that painting mesmerized him. It made him weep uncontrollably. It was so moving to him, and his life became just obsessed with that painting. And he loved it. He could not get enough of it. And then he said something really dangerous and bad happened. He began to study what other people said about the painting. And it just killed it for him. He just lost the, he said, the magic. He said, I can't even really look at that painting anymore. It doesn't do anything to me. <laughs> and uh, he, he wrote a book called Pictures and Tears. And he wrote this book explaining how do you really enjoy art and never lose the awe. That first, it's kind of like the don't lose your first love in the letters of Revelation that uh, the Apostle John wrote. How do you not lose uh, the beauty and the wonder that that art produced in you? I know it sounds crazy, but check this out. This is really interesting. He wrote this book, and here's his recipe for how to let art truly speak to you. How to be changed by sight. This is what James Elkins said. Number one, go to museums alone. Seeing paintings is not a social event, not an opportunity to spend quality time with relatives and friends. It takes concentration and calm, and that is not easy when you're with someone else. Number two, don't try to see everything at once. Next time you go to a museum, resist the temptation to see the whole collection. Get a map of the museum and choose just one or two rooms. When you find those rooms, look around and choose just one painting. Number three, remove or minimize distractions. Make sure the room is uncrowded. It's best to choose a painting in an out-of-the-way corner. If a guard starts staring at you, leave and go to another room. Number four, take your time. Once you've chosen the painting, give it a chance. Stand in front of it. Think a bit. Step back. Look again. Sit down. Relax. Get up. Walk around. Come back and look some more. Paintings are very slow in the way they work. Five, pay full attention. You need to do nothing but look. Care about nothing but looking. You have to concentrate on understanding what you see. That takes sustained and focused energy. You have to pay strict attention to the picture at the expense of everything else. Number six, be on the lookout for people who are really looking. There are always a few people who don't walk at the official museum pace quickly. If you find such people, watch them for a few minutes, notice their patience and the concentration they bring to bear on the pictures. If they take a break, talk to them. Seven, be faithful. Once you've spent time with the painting, promise yourself you'll come back to see it again. He goes on to say this, by all means, let yourself be taken in by these wonders. Let the painting do its work. Let the painting hypnotize you. That is the only way to really experience a picture. And his final advice was this, throw yourself into looking. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it could very well have been written about what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I know you're saying, oh, that's crazy, preacher. What are you saying? I'm saying, why do, why do artists get it, but Christians are so slow? When you ask us, how do you grow? That just sounds too simple. It sounds too scandalous, doesn't it? You behold Christ. You gaze at Christ, at his wonder, at his life. You see the way he treated sinners, how he drew near them. You, you see the way, like in, in Mark's gospel that we're reading right now, how Jesus could command a storm. He could command a storm. He could create one, or he could silence one. But listen. At the same time, he refused to call down lightning on a Samaritan village that wouldn't believe in him. You see, all these things that seem contradictory coming together in Christ. He's transcendent, but he's near. He's holy, but he's compassionate. 
He's a lion, but he's a lamb. Behold Christ. All those perfections come together and meet in the person of Christ. And look, if you look at a painting, you're going to see flaws eventually, aren't you? Hey, whoever your hero is, you look at them, you're going to find something wrong with them. Mine was Evil Knievel, and then I realized he's a womanizer. Got treats his wife like trash. But man, he could jump a motorcycle, right? There's all these flaws in, in our objects of affection, but not in Christ. He's perfect. And when you, when, you, when you behold something like that, you strangely begin to imitate it. I remember watching the Superman movie from 1978 version, Christopher Reeve, like a million times. Okay? And eventually I started wearing a cape and putting my hand on my, on my hip and jumping off the picnic table and jumping over bushes in a single bound. I remember when I was a young man, 22 years old, and God called me into ministry, and I moved in with uh, Pastor Roy Hargrave. Listen, I wanted to preach like him. I, I, I adopted his mannerisms, his, his things that he would say when I would teach. I would say, I didn't know what they meant. I just wanted to be like him. Whatever he ate, I would eat. Whatever books he read, I would read them. Isn't that crazy? You say that's foolish. Well, you know, the most sincere form of flattery is imitation. And I'm telling you that it happens mysteriously and spiritually when you behold Christ. You begin to become like him. In fact, that word behold, it's in the active, it's in an active sense verb. But when it says becoming, that's in the passive tense. Looking and beholding is what you and I do. It's what we're called to do. Okay? Transforming us, becoming like Christ, God does that. We can't produce that. We can't cause that. You know, we don't initiate and cause the growth. God does that. What we do is we put ourselves in a position to behold Christ. That's our responsibility. There's a, there's a quote by John Owen. I want to put it up. This is amazing. One person said this is one of the greatest paragraphs he's ever read outside the Bible. I don't know if I would say that. But check this out. Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays. Wow, just stop right there. Do you hear what he said? Let us live in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. And what will happen? Virtue will come from Christ and repair all our decays and will renew a right spirit within us and cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. You see how he's saying, you want to be an obedient Christian, a faithful Christian, a fruitful Christian, um, a generous Christian. You don't want to be stingy, proud, angry. Owen is saying what Paul said and what I'm telling you, that behold Christ, virtue will proceed from him and will repair us and will restore us and will grant us all duties of obedience. Nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls hereunto as a constant view of Christ and his glory. Isn't that awesome? And then John Piper, there's another quote. Can you put that up? I'm sorry, this one's a little bit longer. The work of the Holy Spirit in changing us is not to work directly on our bad habits, but to make us admire Jesus Christ so much that sinful habits feel foreign and distasteful. Did you hear that? That just blows me away to think about it, guys. That sounds and seems so counterintuitive. The Holy Spirit doesn't work directly on your bad habit? No. The Holy Spirit's job, what Jesus Christ said the night that he was betrayed, he will glorify me, for he will come and take from me and will give it to you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, makes us like Christ by giving us, by showing us the beauty of Christ. He has a floodlight ministry. He is like down and hidden, and he, and he exalts Christ for us to see and behold. Admire Jesus Christ so much that sinful habits feel foreign and distasteful. The gospel does its work decisively by revealing the glory of God, Christ, who is the image of God. Therefore, if we neglect the glory of God in Christ as the greatest gift of the gospel, we cripple the sanctifying work of the church. I agree with that. And J.D. Breer says, all true change, heart-level change that restructures our desires begins with sight. So long looking with admiration produces change and it produces growth. And man, I spent way more time on that point than I wanted to. This last point, I promise we're going to go very, very fast. <laughs> promise. I'm almost done, guys. People start getting scared when you say, when a preacher says, and the second point, <laughs> this is the last point, okay? First one is sight over sweat, right? Here's the second point focus over frenzy. Because the text that, the other text that Bobby read was Matthew 11:28. 28. Come unto me, all 
you who are weary, who are heavy laden, who are burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Come to me, learn from me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Man, how revolutionary is that in the day that we live in? Do you guys realize we have never been a more hurried, rushed, frenetic, panicked, distracted generation than we are today? Do you know that? I don't even need to tell you statistics, but I want to tell you some anyway. Check this out. Do you know in the 1800s how much the average American got night's sleep? How many hours a night? It's going to blow you away. 11. 11 hours of sleep per night. Man, I want to go back to the 1800s, don't you? Do you know how much the average American gets today? 6. 5.7. Some say 6.5. For me, it's like 3.2. <laughs> On Saturday night, at least. You say, what's that got to do with anything? Well, I just got a question for it. See, back then, if you wanted to learn something, you picked up a book and you read it. You didn't ask Siri and you didn't YouTube it, okay? You didn't call, phone a friend, none of those things. You actually had to learn. If you wanted to visit somebody back then, you went and saddled your mule or your horse in the barn. You got dressed, packed your lunch or your dinner because it may be across the state line. If you wanted to get warm back then, you had to go chop firewood. Now you just have to punch a thermostat button. To eat breakfast back then, you had to go gather your eggs, right? Milk the cow. Here's, here's what I'm saying. We have all these time-saving <laughs> devices today and apps, life hacks, right? Here's my question. What in the world happened to all that time we saved? Because I talk to people that are Christians, and it's like, man, just, just how much time are you able, not in a legalistic sense, but it's a legit question. How much time... Are you strategically devoting to beholding Christ? Just answer that question for me. Answer that question, and I will tell you a whole bunch about your growth. I promise you. You know, we are not a legalistic church at all. I think this. I think so often people view spiritual disciplines the wrong way, and they chuck them. Spiritual disciplines are what I would call means of grace, like reading your Bible, praying, coming to church, fellowshipping with other Christians. Those are all means of grace, and the word means is important because they're not an end in and of themselves. You don't just go to church to go to church. You don't just read your Bible to read your Bible. You do those things for the end result of seeing Christ more clearly. We have to ask the why question so that we can engage in those things. See? But in order to do that, guys, we're going to have to clear our calendar a little bit. We have never been a more rushed, panicked, anxious culture and generation than we are today. It's like we can't, we can't even fathom the things that I'm talking about. Probably some of us may have hard times because our life is so full. But my question is, full of what? What is it that just absolutely consumes and hijacks us and kidnaps us? Mental health professionals are really concerned about some of the trends they're seeing. See, I don't believe grace is opposed to I believe that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. When I told you sight over sweat, that doesn't mean that you do nothing. No, the fight is positioning yourself in a place where you can see Christ and removing the distractions, turning off the phone, whatever it is you have to do. The average American spends three hours a day on social media platforms. Three hours a day. And that's not work-related. That's not... Those that, that's part of their job. That's just leisure time, I guess, or recreational time. And I'm not saying it's evil. Those things are, technology is a blessing. It's a huge blessing. But it can also become a serious liability. And when, when Jesus said, come to me and rest, he really meant that. Come to me, learn from me. Position yourself. There's a professor, and I have so much more I want to say to you guys. I hope this makes sense. There is a professor, and he was teaching for 30 years at the same university. He taught romanticism, and he taught English. If you don't know what any of those mean, don't worry about it. Okay? He taught for 30 years, and he said this. I've seen that my students have a spectacular hunger for life and more life. They want to study, travel, make friends, make more friends, read everything super fast, take in all the movies, listen to every hot band, Keep up with everyone they've ever known, and there's something else, too, that distinguishes them. They live to multiply possibilities. They're enemies of closure. That's what he means is this. To uh, a college student, the, the most um, 
The perfect time of their day is not the day when they actually decide to do one thing and, and singular task. It's when they have multiple possibilities in front of them. They're going to do 12 things. They're enemies of closure. They're super distracted and, and, and try to uh, multitask everything. He goes on to say this. They're enemies of closure for as much as they want to do and actually manage to do. They always strive to keep their options open, never to shut possibilities down before they have to. They are possibility junkies. And then he says this. One day I tried an experiment in class. I asked the group, how many places were you simultaneously yesterday? At the most. Suppose you were chatting on your cell phone, partially watching a movie in one corner of the computer screen, instant messaging with three people, a modest number, and glancing occasionally at the text for our course, and then also maybe tossing the occasional word to your roommate. Well, that would be seven places at once. Some students answer my question with double digits. Meaning they were doing 10, 11, 12 things at once. Of course, it would take a genius to assure them that anyone who is in seven places at once is not really anywhere at all. Isn't that the truth? Doesn't that characterize? Look, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, guys. I promise. I'm a pastor, and I'm a church planner, and I'm seeing it more and more in my own heart, even in the heart of my little children when they get a device in their hand. And seeing it in culture, we are so distracted that what this passage is calling us to do to behold Christ and be changed, that is a foreign concept. We are like the pop song bubblegum generation sitting down and listening to Mozart, staring long at an art piece. Those things make us giggle and laugh because we're so unaccustomed to it. And you have to develop your palate for doing the things that the Bible calls us to do. And I pray, I pray that we would be a church that understands that. That the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit uses truth to grow us. The truth about Christ. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 